follow you, how to obey you, how to glorify you, the other 166 and a half hours of the week that we're not here. I pray that this time together this morning would be a good source of equipping for us to go out from this church, go out into a world that is often hostile to you, that often presents temptations before us, and know how to respond to them. And also know how to not be mastered by them. Lord, I pray that as we talk openly about a sin that thrives in the dark, that you would bless our efforts to address this directly. And I pray that you would bless our efforts to leave sin behind. And I pray that you would bless our efforts to remind ourselves and to remind the world that Sin always overpromises and underdelivers. And so, Lord, help us avoid its temptations. Help us not fall into its traps. And, Lord, help us grow deeper in our love for you, our appreciation for you, our desire to obey you and honor you with every part of our lives, the parts that people see and the parts that people don't. Lord, again, we love you. We worship you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your body and blood on the cross, Lord. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So what are we talking about when we talk about pornography? Are we only talking about the most crude forms found on the deepest, darkest corners of the Internet? Or are we also talking about the softer, more culturally acceptable forms of pornography? Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart once famously said, in a case addressing pornography, I know it when I see it. I know it when I see it. But surely there's some better way of defining what pornography is. In the Bible, the word porneia, the root of our modern word pornography, is a versatile word. Porneia can be a verb as in something you do, a noun, something you consume, or an adjective, something you are. Broadly speaking, porneia may be defined as participating in any form of unsanctioned or illicit sexual activity by God's standards. In the New Testament, this word is often translated as sexual immorality. And according to God's word, that means any kind of sexual activity outside of God's good and wise framework. That's marriage between a biological man and a biological woman. Scripture treats sexual activity outside of those good God-given bounds as sin. We see Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. By the way, it's very safe to assume that verse 28 can be turned around as well. That if a woman looks at a man with lustful intent in her heart, she has committed adultery in her heart. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. 
And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. According to Jesus, sexual immorality is not just a sin of the flesh, but a sin of the will. It's a sin so dangerous that Jesus commands his people to take drastic measures to avoid it. Now, should believers who struggle with lust, whatever outworking that takes, literally rip our eyes out? Probably not. But we should also be careful not to weaken Jesus' words too much. We must be prepared to take steps that the world considers extreme to live out our God-given identity as saints. No one ever said that following Jesus would be practical by worldly standards. As the early church navigated conflicts between Jewish and Gentile believers, they had to figure out what was expected of these non-Jewish followers of Jesus. As members of God's family, by faith in Christ, did they need to submit to the law of Moses in its entirety? Or were there certain commandments that were specific to Old Testament Jews alone? They had this debate. You can read about it in Acts chapter 15. But one commandment that clearly remained for all believers everywhere regarded sexual immorality. There were many Old Testament commands that did not and do not carry over to believers in Jesus. But sexual immorality stayed put. And it still does today. The Apostle Paul addresses sexual immorality at some point in nearly all of his letters. And some of his strongest words come in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Paul does not speak of sexual immorality lightly. The stakes of sin And this one seems to pop up a lot or high. Now, you may wonder, why does the Bible, why do churches, why do Christians make such a big deal about specifically sexual sin? There are all kinds of sins out there. Paul just mentioned crude joking. He just mentioned covetousness. Well, part of why Paul makes such a big deal about the sin of sexual immorality may be seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 12. Paul says there, All things are lawful for me. That's a Corinthian argument that he's quoting and refuting. But not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me. 
but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. According to Paul, sexual sin matters because our bodies are good gifts from God the Father. None of us would exist apart from his grace, his generosity in creating us. In a sense, every single one of us owes God an insurmountable debt simply for being here. It would be a travesty to take this gift of our bodies And use it for purposes directly opposed to God's will. On top of that, sexual sin matters because Christians, including our bodies, are united to Christ by faith. We can't neatly separate or compartmentalize our souls, our spirits, our minds away from our bodies. We are united to Jesus. We live in him and he in us. We belong to him. We were bought with a price that only he could pay and that he did pay on the cross. And that includes our bodies. Sexual sin also matters because Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We have been marked and set apart for holiness and glory, not sin. To commit sexual immorality is a rejection, a betrayal of our Christian identity as temples of the Holy Spirit. Sexual sin matters because one day our bodies will be raised. The Christian's destiny upon Jesus' return is physical resurrection. So why would we use these bodies? The bodies that will one day be raised into God's eternal presence for sin. And finally, according to Paul, sexual sin matters because there is something different about it. Now, that is not to say that sexual sin is inherently worse than other sins. We've mentioned some of those other sins already in Ephesians 5 that Paul lists right next to sexual immorality. But sexual sin can be different. We see this and how common it is. It started King David's downfall. 
King Solomon's downfall. And it still seems to be coincidentally present in just about every scandal you hear about. Paul connects sexual sin all the way back to Genesis 2, when God made Adam and Eve and announced the purpose of marriage. Something unique, something mysterious, something spiritually significant happens through sex. That's why one ethicist named Lewis Smedes argues that there is more to sex than meets the eye or excites the genitals. There is no such thing as casual sex, no matter how casual people are about it. In Corinth, people were casual about sex, which led them to go to prostitutes. In Fishers, in 2022, our casual attitude about sex may lead us to pornography. Pornography may be the most casual form of sexual immorality we can imagine. You don't even have to leave home for it. Sex is a good gift of God. We talked about that in another awkward sermon last year from the Song of Solomon. But like any good gift of God, it can be corrupted and abused in the hands of sinners. God gave us sex for good reasons. Procreation. An uncommon bond between husband and wife. And yes, for our enjoyment. But pornography takes this good gift and turns it into an act of selfishness. Isolation and cheap pleasure. Pleasure that ultimately ends in pain. And not only is sex a good gift of God, our bodies are good gifts from the Father as well. For believers, our bodies are united to God the Son, indwelt by God the Spirit, and will one day be raised. So what we do with our bodies now matters. While sexuality is a major part of being human, it's not everything. We should avoid the temptations to act as though sex doesn't matter at all. Because we hold the right doctrines in our heads about Jesus, it doesn't really matter what we do with our eyes or our bodies. That's a bad extreme. But we also shouldn't elevate our sexuality to such a high standard that it becomes intrinsic to who we are. That we can't possibly have a fulfilling life without Sex. Neither one of those extremes is true. And both extremes can lead you down dangerous roads. So pornography is dangerous because it's sinful. That really is enough for Christians right there. That kind of ends the argument about whether or not we should do it. But even if you don't buy the argument that it's immoral or sinful, just consider the practical damage. That it causes. Pornography damages the viewer. One philosopher puts it this way The pleasant sexual experience I may have of a human being, either from a glossy page, a television, or computer screen, fails to disclose a person in his or her growth, struggles, and aspirations. And in circumstances where I am surrounded by shallow commodities, 
I tend to become shallow as well. Pornography dehumanizes us because we dehumanize others when we watch it. Studies have found that watching pornography physically changes our brains in negative ways. It can lead to health problems like erectile dysfunction in young men. It fosters an attitude of isolation and selfishness. It damages the viewer. On top of that, it damages those around us. You only need to research scandals surrounding companies like Pornhub and Playboy to see how this industry fosters abuse, especially of women. Men who start watching porn after they're married are twice as likely to divorce. It contributes to sex trafficking. One study found that 88% of pornographic videos perpetuated scenes of violence against women. On top of that, men who regularly watch pornography were more likely to admit that if they knew they wouldn't be caught, they would be willing to commit rape or sexual assault. We may think that what we watch, what we see, What we do in the privacy of our bedrooms doesn't hurt anybody else. But we would be wrong. It damages us. It damages those around us. And it damages the participants. The pornographic industry is notoriously degrading, predatory, and objectifying. Especially to those who actually work in it. And while some might suggest that it can be empowering, one theologian argues that at the end of the day, porneia, that word we talked about earlier, is treating another human being as a thing. Treating another human being as a thing rather than someone made in God's image. That person on that screen That person in that magazine is not just a resource for my own enjoyment. That person is made in God's image. You don't have to be some tight-laced, high-strung, conservative Christian to recognize the damage that pornography causes. The science backs it up. In 2016, the Washington Post called pornography a public health crisis. Some politicians have even suggested banning it. And as we said earlier, Christians are not immune. About two-thirds of Christian men watch pornography at least monthly. And 54% of pastors have done so within the past year. 20% of Christian women say they are addicted to porn. It's not just a problem for men. And some married Christians have convinced themselves that watching pornography together is beneficial. We are not immune from this temptation. And so much of this, so much of this sin comes back to the main theme of this sermon series. It comes back to technology. There are approximately 4.2 million 
pornographic websites in the United States alone. 4.2 million. And with the prevalence of smartphones, you don't need to sneak around to find it. If anything, technology has made it far too easy for pornography to find us. So again, scripture is clear that this is a sin. And sin always overpromises and underdelivers. It does horrible damage to all involved. And modern technology makes it more accessible than ever. So if you put that all together, what are believers to do? Well, first, following Jesus' words in Matthew 5, be vigilant against it. Be vigilant against it. As Jesus teaches, sexual immorality, in whatever form it takes, is more than just a sin of the eyes, more than just a sin of the mind, more than just a sin of the flesh. It's a sin of the will, a sin of the heart. May we pray that the Holy Spirit would sanctify and change our hearts internally, which will then help us lead to different actions externally. And then reinforce that internal change by making it harder to fall back into the external action. That may include practical steps like blocking software, accountability with fellow believers, or simply developing a deeper awareness of how and when you are most susceptible. Be vigilant against it, because this sin will enslave you. Second, may we strive to set an example of holiness to the world. As we've seen, our world is swimming in opportunities to indulge this sin. And pornography is sucking the life out of people left and right. So may we as Christians, may we as a church, celebrate the goodness of God's gifts of sex. God's gift of our bodies within the holy bounds that he has set. The bounds that lead to human flourishing rather than emptiness and pain that so many people experience. And while we're at it, let's practice what we preach. Let's be honest. You can't blame the world for rolling its eyes when Christians yell and scream about some sexual sins. The one celebrated this month, for example. And then we go home, stare at our phones, and commit sexual sin of our own. May we strive to be examples of sexual holiness to the world, rather than sexual hypocrisy. And last, may we remind ourselves and show the world that there is something better available. We're not just here to condemn all the bad stuff. We're here to point people to the good, the true, the beautiful stuff. That's the stuff of Christ. That's the stuff of the kingdom. The stuff of eternal value. Let's remind ourselves and show the world that there is something better than the temporary pleasure that you may get from sexual immorality. 
And that something better is Christ himself. Anything that promises you joy or purpose that isn't Christ, that is fool's gold. As we close, turn again to 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 9. The Apostle Paul says there, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There is redemption, healing, cleansing, hope, freedom for those guilty of sexual sin. And we know it because we needed the exact same redemption, healing, cleansing, hope, and freedom. And we found it. Because even if those sins aren't ours, there is some sin that is ours. And we needed redemption just as badly as anybody else. And we got it in Christ. Jesus offered salvation to prostitutes, adulterers, and porn users. That salvation starts with justification by faith in him. Results in a life of leaving sin behind and pursuing holiness by the Spirit's power. And ends with joy in the Father's eternal presence. Before Augustine was a saint, he was a wayward pleasure-seeking, selfish jerk. And much of his sin revolved around sex until he famously realized that his restless heart would only find rest in God. In the same way, our restless hearts will not find rest in pornography, sexual immorality, or any form, or the technology that makes it so widely available. Our hearts will only find rest, joy, and wholeness in Christ. So may we flee sexual immorality. May we leave that sin behind for something, for someone better. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for Sundays. Thank you for Father's Day. Thank you for Sundays with sermons that are on passages that encourage us and and warm our hearts. And thank you for Sundays and sermons and passages that make us uncomfortable and challenge us and convict us. Lord, I pray that you would use these words that we've read this morning from your word to do all those things to encourage us, to challenge us, to convict us, to remind ourselves not to fall into the promises that sin gives us, but ultimately never fulfills. I pray that you would help us live lives of holiness, that we would understand that holiness is not limited to some parts of our lives, not limited to 
a couple of hours on Sunday morning, but you call us to be holy as you are holy every second of every day. And Lord, we don't have that power in and of ourselves to be holy as you are holy. We need the help that only you can provide and that thankfully you have provided. We can be set free from sin. And while sin will never truly be totally gone from us in this life, we can experience real freedom. We can experience real progress. We can experience real improvement by your grace and by the power of your spirit. With brothers and sisters supporting us, with your word guiding us. Lord, I pray that we would experience that kind of freedom. Help us repent. Help us leave sexual immorality behind where it belongs because we know that we were washed. We know that we were sanctified. We know that we've been justified by faith in Christ. Help us be who we are. You've said that we're saints. Help us live like saints when people are watching and when people aren't watching. And Lord, thank you for the forgiveness that you give us. That no skeletons in our closets No blemishes in our search history are too powerful to not be overcome by the cross. Thank you, Lord, for your body and your blood. Thank you for your resurrection. Thank you that we have hope in this life and in the next. That sin doesn't have to and won't have the final say over us because of who you are and what you've done. So, Lord, again, help us live holy lives. In a world with all kinds of temptations, in a world where technology can do wonderful things and can drop horrible things right into our laps, Lord, help us be holy as you are holy. We love you, we honor you, we worship you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.